She's one of England's most famous queens, and her tragic fall has captured imaginations for centuries. But a new biography proves that there's still more to learn about Anne Boleyn. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. The story of Anne Boleyn has provided material for generations of writers. Shakespeare featured her in his history play about Henry VIII. Recently, Anne has starred in historical romance novels, a Broadway musical, and prestige TV dramas. A new biography by the team of husband and wife historians John Guy and Julia Fox takes a scholarly look at all the evidence surrounding Anne's rise and fall. They freshly examine well-known accounts and also take in passing references in neglected sources. They focus in particular on Anne's years of training in the courts of Europe. That training shaped her into the formidable woman whom Henry VIII came to regard as an intellectual equal. It also prepared her for the ruthless politics of the English court, where Anne's ambition and cunning won her some powerful enemies. John Guy is a fellow at Cambridge University and a Tudor historian who's appeared on many TV and radio documentaries about the period. He's written biographies of Henry VIII, Thomas More, and Queen Elizabeth I. His biography of Mary, Queen of Scots, was adapted into a film in 2018. Julia Fox previously wrote biographies of Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and Anne's sister, Jane Boleyn. Here's Julia Fox and John Guy in conversation with Barbara Bogave. You've both written books about other members of this family. So what's the idea that you'd always eventually get around to a biography of Anne Boleyn? Yes and no. Um, when I did Jane Boleyn uh, a few years ago, I, I was very, very interested in Anne and thought maybe. Um, what I had never thought at the time was that I'd actually do it with John. Sort I'm almost afraid to ask why. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've never actually done a book officially together. Um, unofficially, Everything that we've written uh, has been collaborative in the sense that we run it by each other, we bounce ideas off each other, we criticise each other. Um, sometimes in the middle of the night, we'll wake up and talk about things, you know, with on one of the books. But I hadn't actually thought, no, let's do one together. And then suddenly... It just happened. Um, it, it just happened. It I mean, just for, happened, didn't it, really? Yeah, for me, it was always a challenge at the back of the mind, one to be perhaps left for a few years until the right moment came. And Henry is a challenge. Um, usually, uh, certainly if I go into a, a project, it's because I've seen that there are sources that have never been used on a major topic. Uh, and that was so for Mary Queen of Scots in particular. Mm. Uh, it's true for this book because mm. nobody had before um, really mined out the French archives, even though Anne was so much connected with France in pretty much the whole of her life, the whole of her, her story. Nobody had really researched her, if you like, pre her backstory in France. In fact, people thought it could never be done. Over the years, it's just become so apparent, certainly to me, I don't know what Julia thinks about this, that character is formed yes. in childhood and adolescence. Yes. And you just can't miss out yeah. those years. Well, this is great because I want to start in France. Uh, but before I do because you piqued my interest. It's interesting to me that uh, you're writing about a marriage in this book. <laughs> you guys are married. 
And then, so do you think, do you think that the fact that you were married and you were writing about a marriage, that, that gave you uh, different directions or insights? Yes and no, I think. Um, I think it does in the sense that you you realize that with a marriage, it's it's the everyday. It's not just big occasions, you know. You've got to be able to get on every day. It really is about everything that sort of happens to you as, as your life goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true, don't you? Yeah, I mean, certainly. Uh, one, I mean, one put of it the this way, and we're still married. <laughs> I would throw that in. <laughs> one of, one oh, of the things that... One of the things that very much struck me was to realise that neither of these people had actually really given much thought to what it would be like to live no, with the I other one. That's, that's what I'm you know, trying particularly, to say. Particularly, particularly Anne. This is wonderful because it really m- makes this very long ago and very storied story real to me. It's wonderful. Thank you. Um, but I want to go back to France because it is so fascinating to see how you describe Anne being influenced by her time at the Habsburg court and also by Queen Claude of France, who was the wife of King Francis I. So let's start with Margaret. So so Anne is not even a teenager yet. She's 12 or going on 13. and And she's exposed to Margaret, this very glamorous and powerful uh, single woman, what did she learn from Margaret about how women can behave at court and exert political influence? Oh, how does one begin with Margaret? Well, I mean, (laughs) Margaret had cracked what it was to be, you know, a woman, a single woman, uh, because she was a widowed woman, which, of course, gave her great status and was determined never to marry again. Uh, and um, she was determined to control her own destiny. She could see uh, how Margaret could operate on the world stage, well, the European stage. Uh, She could see how she would preside over various court functions. She could see how she would receive ambassadors, how she could negotiate. For her father, though, remember, she's not a ruler in her own right, although Margaret could more than hold her end up in any sort of discussion. Um, She ran a tight ship. Yes, she did. She knew how to discipline the court. Um, They had a very, um, if you like, um, detailed etiquette. Uh, She took particular interest in her her maids of honour. Yes. Uh, They were educated to a very high standard. They were taught courtly manners. They were taught how to dress. Uh, how to conduct themselves, and they were warned about the dangers of predatory predatory men. Yes. Uh, And, um, you know, that was all part of of the package. Yeah. Uh, So a real education in many ways. And then she was exposed to uh, Queen Claude and her court in Paris. So what was what was court like there? And what what do you think she she soaked up? Because it part of your argument and your what you demonstrate is that she she was just like a sponge during her time yeah mm-hmm. it wasn't just Claude one has to remember though um the real power the female power at court was actually the king of France Francis I's mother Louise of Savoy and his sister Marguerite Marguerite, Marguerite. of Angoulême so you've got a sort of triumvirate. Just so many fascinating, strong women. 
Yeah. Well, well, these were really powerful women, and they were in and out of each other's apartments the entire time. I yes. mean, Louise of Savoy, uh, Marguerite of Angoulême, they were hopping in and out of Claude's apartments. They were uh, basically conversing. Um, they exercised enormous in influence. Um, Louise of Savoy, I mean, she got to the level where she would just make treaties, uh, and she was regent when Francis was out of the country. They were also interested in, in religious Religion. innovations yes. and um, the early French reformers. They traveled all around France, so Anne with them was able to see an enormous you know, number of things. And of course, Anne didn't need to eavesdrop because wherever Claude was, there the maids uh, of honor were. And, um, you know, Anne is just learning and soaking up all this stuff. Let me give you one example of how you, know, you can trace it as absolute influence, which is that um, not long after Claude's coronation, the French court went to Argentan, which was where Marguerite of Angoulême's um, sort of stately home was. And there King Francis made Marguerite of Angoulême Duke of Berry in her own right as if she were a man. She had the Duchy of Berry in her own right. Uh, she had an enormous uh, grant of, of income from that. Her husband was completely excluded from any of these benefits in the deed of grant. Uh, and what's absolutely striking is that Anne, when Anne is very much on the up, uh, and Henry makes her Marquess of Pembroke, it's on exactly the same basis. She's made Marquess of Pembroke in her own right. She's given an, an enormous estates. She's given money, which she holds in her own, own right, and she can pass on to her heir. She would be entitled to sit in the House of Lords, although there's no evidence that she ever actually did. And what's more, the guest of honour at the ceremony was the French ambassador. So to put a fine point on it, how did the French court and the Habsburgs shape Anne intellectually? I mean, what beliefs did she return to England with regarding religion and political reform and what a woman uh, could do? Well, certainly religion, I think, is, is very important. Anne is not a Lutheran. She wants religious reform, but not to go down Luther's path. She wants reforming the Catholic Church. She doesn't want a new Protestant church to emerge. But it's not just, it isn't just religion. I mean, Anne saw how these powerful women could intervene in politics, how they could shape events. Uh, she also became, she was incredibly cultured. Um, I mean, she, she could recognise high-quality art, high-quality manuscripts. When she had the money, after she was made um, Marquess of Pembroke, and then later as queen, queen, she was able to commission manuscripts. Uh, and she also, of course, did works of charity, poor relief, supporting education, supporting scholars, uh, all of those things. So after this incredibly influential time that she had abroad, did is this what gave her the 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 guts to think she could marry a king? I mean, did she return to England primed to ensnare King Henry? No, no. absolutely not. No. No, 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 there's no, 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 no. There's no that thought could never no. have entered her head. She came back and she was of a marriageable age. And she would have expected a a good marriage. Marrying up, yes. Marrying the king who's already married, no. Uh, that 
sort of it almost evolves, really, doesn't it? Well, there's it? quite a bit of evidence that when she came back, and she did, she did get back into court, uh, I, I mean, ironically, in Catherine of Aragon's household, yes. she ran across Harry P Percy, wow. the son of the Duke of Northumberland, and there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that, you know, they had a thing going. Uh, and actually might even have been close to promising to, to marry yes. each other, but this was stopped. Yes. But it wasn't stopped because of Henry. At least we don't think so. It was stopped because there's very solid evidence that uh, Cardinal Wolsey, who was then Henry's chief minister, and Henry had decided that they would actually earmark Anne to marry in Ireland Yes, uh, uh, in order to solve a particular Irish problem. But the thing which really, I think, came to strikers was... You know, Anne came back actually just before Christmas of um, 1521, and it wasn't until the winter of 1525-26, and really not until 26 sort of spring, that there was any even the slightest mm. suggestion that Henry might ha have any sort of serious interest. In fact, he probably didn't even notice Anne very much, no. other than the fact that she was the sister of the woman with whom he took up for an affair, Mary Boleyn. And but what happens is that suddenly politics swing away from, if you like, a Habsburg alliance, which, you know, had been, which had been there since the early 20s, to uh, a break with the Habsburgs. And now Henry's looking to France, and suddenly Anne is the epitome of all things yeah. French. And so she becomes, you know, incredibly sort of, if you like, um, strategic, because here is, a here is a woman who Henry can see, you know, he quite likes the look of, but also somebody who, you know, if you like, politically, culturally, but intrinsically is invested in what will become his, yeah. his ent enterprise. And, you know, he particularly, like, not only is she a trophy wife, she's a, an articulate wife who can actually sort of talk the language that he wants to... That, that he wants to hear about France and, you know, how wonderful it is to have an alliance with, with France. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. But what was her father's role in this? I mean, Th Thomas Boleyn has so often been portrayed in movies and, and popular culture treatments of this period as a, as a conniving and, like, Machiavellian social climber, sometimes an outright pimp of his, of his daughters. So, so do some myth-busting for us. What does the historical record show about this man? If, we, if, we, if, we, if we're thinking of Thomas Boleyn's character, I mean, this man is extremely able. Yeah. He is the archetypal courtier. Uh, he, he was a seasoned who, diplomat, wasn't he? He was a oh, seasoned yes. diplomat. He was He's he was a, he was a fluent French speaker. He became a very important um, ambassador to France on on and off. So, could you argue that maybe history has shortchanged Bolin? That he was more more than a social climber? I, I, I think, in terms of the stereotype, absolutely, it has. Um, I mean, I think he does seem to have been quite mean. He was on the make. And, and looking for every opportunity, mm. like grants of land, uh, annuities, all of those things, the Berlins were, because that yeah. was, of course, was the way that you got on at the, uh, at the Tudor court. Right. And he lived beyond his means, you yeah. point out. Let's do a little bit more looking into the myths. And the biggie is, did Anne Boleyn withhold sex to keep Henry VIII hooked before going heading into marriage or hoping for marriage? And what evidence do you have of this? Well, in a word, yes, she did. So, so that begs the question: Was she was she chased or playing a long game? I mean, because I've always thought that history, history's greatest example of slut shaming, must be Anne Boleyn. <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> she Poor wants. To, she wants to be queen. 
she's she not going to, to be queen. She's not going but to do this unless she, she ends up married. And and, and for, for that, Henry needs a divorce. He does. I mean, because she's been taught. I mean, she's not only seen it. with yeah. her own sister. This is uh, it. Who was, you know, who was used used by the king. But, I mean, everything that she's learned from Margaret of Austria and everything that she's learned in, in the household of Queen Claude, she knew exactly what these blokes could be like yeah. and you know how badly you would end up. So Anne is determined. I mean, the evidence, the evidence that she withheld sex is in Henry's own love letters. Absolutely. Uh, once Henry really did fancy Anne like mad, he put pen to paper. And that, for Henry, is, is almost unheard of. I mean, this is the man who said writing to me is tedious and painful. And yet he sat down and wrote 17... Uh, of the most amazing letters. Uh, in them, he bears his soul. He's, he's almost naked. But what I wanted to bring them up for at this point is that in the middle of one of these letters, Henry is starting to wonder whether basically he's wasting his time. And he, he gets slightly more insistent that Anne has got to um, show him what she really thinks of him. You know, does she love him with just an ordinary love or is it more? And he's so insistent and basically saying, you know, if you really don't want to go ahead, I'll, have, I'll be brokenhearted, but I'm going to get over it. So now you decide. You know, basically, you know, you, yeah. you're not going to, you know, I mean, I'm longing for you. you yeah. Know? Basic, basically, you know, he wants to penetrate her, and she, she, she's, she's yeah. not playing. She's not, playing and she's ball. not going to play because she, until she's ready, and until she's pretty sure she's going to get what she wants by them, which will be marriage, because she knows, as John was saying, darn well, what can happen uh, if she gives way too soon. But how can she even believe she would achieve marriage? Well, it's a breathtaking gamble. I know, uh, and of course, Henry, Henry is. I mean, we can't, un you can't underestimate. Um, just how madly in love with, how mm. obs obsessed, he I mean, Henry obsessed. was, um, totally you know, with Anne. I mean, he writes in, you know, he sends her a message in a prayer book. Um, if you remember my love in your prayers as strongly as I adore you. And this is actually when they're in chapel. You know, I shall hardly be forgotten for I am yours, Henry R. Always. I mean, he's he's passionately, these love letters are Oh, they are amazing. They're I absolutely mean, passionate. At the end of some of them, he actually puts A, B inside a little heart that he draws. As if he's a sort of six, lovesick yes. teenager carving uh, her initials on a tree. Henry loves Anne. Yeah. That's you're leading me right to my amazing. next question, which is how are we to think about Henry himself? Because you portray him as this incredibly intelligent, uh, but uh, this is a quote, overindulged by a doting mother and overprotected by an autocratic father who grew into a narcissist who saw exercise and control as his birthright, a man who never accepted blame for his own actions and always looked for scapegoats. I'm afraid that's what we think. Mm. Um, and it's taken, he... I mean, in my case, it's taken 40, <laughs> 40 years to reach this conclusion. Um, you know, because you know, I've done this, I've been in this game for for, for quite a while. I mean, and, uh, I mean, I think Julia spent a long time talking about this, didn't we? And oh, and we, and ages. because the question is, I mean, there are historians out there. You know, I mean, rep, you know, 
I mean, incredible, 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 learned historians, yeah. who, you know, who've, who've been looking, you know, I mean, really, I suppose for decades, for the moment when Henry turned, you know, from a sort of good chap into a bad one, yes. you know, and different moments have been been, well. been raised. But we just see that the potential for that ruthlessness it's there was from there the really one. from the beginning. And right the potential for one. that narcissism was there, you know, right from right from the, the, the beginning. Yeah. I mean, you can see it way before he meets Anne, even, in 1521. He's always suspicious about things, and you can see why. Um, but he's very suspicious of uh, this powerful nobleman, the Duke of Buckingham, who was madly rich and who did have uh, a bit of a claim to the throne, I suppose. But when he really becomes suspicious, and there is a case against Buckingham uh, for various reasons, largely nefarious, Henry himself coaches the witnesses against Buckingham. And Buckingham, I'm afraid, is is chopped rather viciously rather by brutally. A, absolutely by a bungling, inexperienced head, headsman who takes several blows to get his head off. And Buckingham was alive for most of that. So there is this propensity right from the beginning. So we have a ruthless Henry intent on getting what he wants and besotted with Anne and... We have Anne withholding sex and interested in becoming queen and in procuring this divorce. What, it took five years, what in those years was her role in in the divorce? I mean, I think the thing, the, the thing which I think is, you know, a sort of absolute backbone of our of our story is that our, the way we use this evidence is that we show how once Anne had agreed to go with Henry, and they would work towards um, getting the, um, Henry divorced from, from Catherine of Aragon. They worked as uh, one. Yeah. Uh, and Anne was able to send her own uh, diplomats to Europe. Uh, Henry's diplomats reported to Anne yes. as well as to Henry independently. Sometimes um, they came back and reported first to Anne and only afterwards to Henry. Mm. I mean, in many uh, ways, in many ways, Anne is, Anne, Anne is shrewder in the workings of European politics as far as the divorce is concerned than Henry, because she knows that a lot of Henry's ideas are not necessarily going to yield fruit and it needs something, you know, a bit more, with a bit more muscle in it. Mm. And then I think, you know, to come back to, come back to your question, uh, once um, Cardinal Wolsey, you know, the then chief minister has failed uh, to um, actually pull off this divorce and effectively gets rid of him, uh, it takes her almost a year mm. To do it, but she gets rid of him, and then, I mean, he just dies because he's been t totally—he's not executed, but he dies because he's just been pulled to pieces and just destroyed. And then what happens is that um, she, she, her family—they have their own scholars. The Boleyns are, are connected to Cam the University of Cambridge. They've had their own scholars. They've supported scholars there. They were in touch with people who understood about um, canon law and the law of getting marriages annulled and. Um, they get they get hold of Durham House, which was one of the houses that Wolsey had occupied, and they install their scholars there. And they come up with a new theory, which is that the King of England is and always had been the head of the church in within the realm, within the realm of England, and not the Pope. The Pope was only the Bishop of Rome. And his authority uh, did not, particularly his jurisdiction over legal things like marriage, did not extend uh, beyond, if you like, the province uh, of, of, of Rome, beyond central Italy. 
And Henry loved this. It appealed, mm. it appealed to his psychology. Because now not only was he head, he not was he king, he was head of the church and he sat directly under Christ. Mm. So he interpreted the scriptures. He could do what he liked. He could suppress the monasteries if he wanted to and seize all the money. And what's more, he could commission the Archbishop of Canterbury to hear his case for divorce and they would pronounce it and he could enforce that in England. It's fascinating. You really take us there. Anne and Henry get the divorce. They're married, but they're only married. Anne is only queen for about Three years. Three years. And here years. you've described these role models she had for how to exert influence and and, and rule alongside uh, her husband and a king. So what was she able to accomplish in those three years? Less, I suppose, than she had hoped. Um, you have to remember that when she was actually crowned as queen, uh, she really believed and maybe fleetingly Henry believed that they might share power. Had Elizabeth been a boy, because of course when Anne is crowned, she is pregnant, she's, what, that's June, so she's about six, seven months pregnant with Elizabeth. Had Elizabeth been a boy, who knows? But she was a girl. I think too, and you see, what happens is that once Henry's, once he's got her yeah. and she's his wife, that that primeval patriarchal urge to yeah, control in kicks again. in. Absolutely. Is he really going to de delegate? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, discretion yeah, in foreign policy. You know, is he really going to give this power to his wife? But even 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 while even within the the limits of power that she's got. Uh, uh, as Queen Anne is doing things with welfare, with religion, uh, she's interested in monastic reform, yeah. uh, and, th and things things are happening there. Uh, she certainly becomes a champion of, 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 of poor, poor relief. Um, she appoints um, chaplains and, and gets them appointed as positions of pu public preaching, uh, who are of the reform cause. Yes, uh, I mean there's a lot happening, and I mean she really does. I mean it in Elizabeth's um, reign. People look back and said, without Anne Boleyn, there would have been no Reformation in England. Mm. And that's pretty much true. So Anne has, has, does still have an enormous legacy, but um, it is striking that the moment they are married, it's as if, well, it's as if the things that she had been doing before, you know, in, in the joint enterprise and divorce were suddenly verboten. Because she's not actually delivering the goods as far as Henry's concerned. Son. Right. And you describe 1536 as this critical turning point. Catherine of Aragon died. Henry suffered this severe jousting accident that, you know, set him on this course to become the Henry VIII that we know from the TV portrayals, this, this huge, uh, very angry tyrant of legend. And Anne miscarried. Uh, a baby son. So Catherine's death meant that Henry could give up this very troubled military alliance with France, right? Is is what followed from that that sealed Anne Boleyn's fate? It Not opened the door completely. to the opportunity, but I think it's it's it, it one's almost got to sort of take it in stages day by day, almost mm -hmm. like a countdown, which you know, within the limits of the sort of length that we had we tried to do because um, it, what, what, fr from that moment, in, from January in 1536, the door is open to a rapprochement with Charles V. But actually what Henry does is he opens a bidding war between yeah. the Habsburgs and, and, and France. He'll give him most 
for help. And that bidding war is going on right to the point yes. uh, up to the night before uh, Anne actually falls. Yes. Uh, and Henry is actually quite undecided um, from, from almost all of that time. What tilts the balance, what tilts the balance is really sort of two things. Uh, the first one is that w when Henry got the divorce without um, papal permission, uh, the Pope uh, threatened to excommunicate him. Uh, and in fact, declared him excommunicate, but didn't actually publish the sentence yet, and de declared him deprived of the kingdom. Henry suddenly hears from his ambassador with Charles, uh, and Charles then is is about to enter Rome. He's uh, in Italy, marching up from the south of Italy up towards Rome, uh, and this this English ambassador Richard Pate reports that Charles is now thinking of enforcing the sentence, which means that Henry's in great in, potentially in great danger. But of course, the second thing that happens is that there's been, um, or what can be made to look like, yes. a um, a scandal in Anne's privy chamber, as if she's suddenly taken her eye off the ball and not kept discipline yeah. the, the way she ought to have done it. But uh, but the rising sort of, if you like, ambition, this man with this oceanic ambition, a former servant of Wolsey who's been biding his time and working his way up, uh, as in, in, in Henry's council, the, the fabled Thomas Cromwell, uh, steps in now uh, with a series of innuendos and accusations from spies which he's placed at court and in, in the privy chamber to suggest that Anne has been unfaithful to Henry, yeah. not just you know once or twice, but but multiple times, but also with her own brother. Uh, and, this, and, again, and incest is, uh, of course, an absolute taboo Henry, yes, for Henry. Yes. So what evidence is there that Anne was guilty of any of these charges? None. There's no, no evidence, None. No, no evidence really. at, at all. So there was a quick trial. Uh, she is convicted. Uh, she's sentenced to death. You begin your book with her execution. You describe it as her dis hoping for a last-minute reprieve. H how do you know that, or why do you think that, and did she have reason to hope for it? I think two of, uh, there's a couple of things there. When she's in the tower, the um, constable of the tower, Kingston, writes various letters reporting things that she said uh, back to Cromwell. And one of the things she said is that I think the king is doing this to me to test me and uh, all will be well. And in another, she said, I'll go to a nunnery if necessary. So she's obviously hoping for life. And when she is actually on the scaffold, she seems to keep looking uh, behind her as though she's expecting a last-minute pardon. Henry did give last-minute pardons. Um, he thought it was a bit of fun, it, didn't oh, he? Oh, I think he enjoyed, yes. Yes, he enjoyed it. So Anne did have some reason for thinking, well, you never know. I think the other thing, too, that's rather special about her her, I mean, her execution or her scaffold performance is, of course, that in her scaffold sp brief scaffold yeah. speech, she didn't actually admit her guilt. Yes. And why would she? I mean, she was an independent woman. She was a woman of spirit. She was not going to admit guilt to something that she knew she hadn't done. Uh, and that was very contrary to... Um, well, it was against the convention of... It was of against the conventions. I mean, that's speeches. not how it was. You were supposed to admit your guilt and yeah. you know, appeal to the and king. Say you deserve to die, etc., cetera, et She et was independent and an iconoclast to the end. To the end. Mm. What do you think it is, then, in the end, about Anne Boleyn and her story that has made her such a 
long-standing figure of fascination. The romance of the glitz the of the, romance, the story, yeah. an ordinary commoner yeah. rising up, you know, first to become a noble woman and then to be the Queen of England. Her feistiness. Her feistiness, yeah. Uh, her, the fact that she could light up a room, that uh, she had a, a glamour, a chic, but an intelligence. She was special. She really was a, a woman who knew what she would want to achieve. And she, took it took it in her own took, time. Yeah, and would fight against convention in that yeah, sense. She would, yeah. But I think what comes across with Anne is the multifacets, mm. um, the human side of Anne, the vulnerable side of Anne, the striking out side of Anne, the confident I'm going to get there side of Anne. And I think also with with Henry, really, that you see him at his most vulnerable too, um, that he is at the mercy of one woman. Oh. Well, thank you so much for bringing this story so vibrantly to life. And thank you for this conversation. I appreciate it. We've enjoyed We've it. We've enjoyed it. We thank really you. Have. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. That was John Guy and Julia Fox interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Their new book, Hunting the Falcon, Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, and the Marriage that Shook Europe is out now from Harper. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under construction for the past three years, but we're looking forward to fully reopening in June of 2024. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.